Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to be with you all. Um, nice to hear it's cold over there. It's um, a little cold over here as well. One of the things that I started doing earlier this year is working in the hospital as an attendant, as they get called over here, or orderly, you might know them as, um, and I'm doing that a couple of days a week, part-time. One of the most heartbreaking experiences that I've had so far um, in my work there is I was in the elevator one day, I just, um, I'd gone up to deliver some flowers to a patient, and on the way up, I'd had this nice little fun exchange with a lady who was going to visit someone and she'd gotten out um, a floor before me. And then after I'd handed out, after I dropped off the flowers, I came back down um, and as the elevator stopped on the floor that she got off and she came back into the lift. And this time she had an elderly gentleman with her in a wheelchair. Um, and as the conversation went on, I kind of figured that this was a father daughter relationship and the man was obviously quite upset uh, a little bit tearful and from what I could understand I was obviously I it was just me in the elevator so I could hear he was saying I I don't even know what time it is I don't even know what day it is and the and the lady um, leant down next to his ear and said it's okay I'll come and stay with you tonight so you're not by yourself and then she looked up and she had a brief look at me and then she just broke down. Um, she broke down in tears. It's just her and her father, I, I guess it is, in the lift and myself. And I felt so helpless um, and heartbroken, really. And then she said the words, this was not the plan. This was not the plan. Um, and how many of us, I guess, can resonate uh, with that, especially as we think about the last two or three years, live long enough and we will all eventually be able to say, this was not the plan. It's probably the hardest thing in the world, I think, to cope with, especially um, the big plans that really don't plan out the way that we imagine that they might. And the disciples in Luke's gospel, in this chapter, are, are in the process of learning that the plan that they had for themselves, the plan that they had for their nation, and in fact for the world, is not God's plan. And like us, they are struggling with it. They don't get it. They resist it. They repeatedly show how committed they are to their own plans. And it really all stems from one unfortunate trap, a trap that actually we can all fall into so frequently. A.W. Tozer says this, and this describes the trap. We have substituted theological ideas for God for an arresting encounter with God. We are full of religious notions about God, but our greatest weakness is that for our hearts, there is no one there. And that can be us. 
full of religious notions and theological ideas about God, but lacking in arresting encounters with God so that for our hearts, there is actually no one there. And this is the disciples in Luke chapter 9. They have their theological notions and ideas about God, but what they need is an arresting encounter. And they get it. Jesus takes three of his disciples away up the mountain for this arresting encounter. And it's eight days, it's eight days later. And he takes Peter and John. It's eight days after um, Jesus has been teaching them about what discipleship is. I presume that you looked at that last week. And he takes Peter and John and James up to the mountain, up on top of this mountain to pray. And while he's praying, everything about Jesus changes. His face, his clothes, he's a glow of radiance, but it's a, a blinding glow, like a flash of lightning. And there are two men that suddenly appear with him, with him, Moses and Elijah, and they're also glowing in glorious splendor. And they're talking with Jesus. Now, Moses and Elijah, you've probably heard of these two individuals before. They come from this time period where the disciples get all their theological ideas and religious notions about God from. That's where they come from. They, were, they come from the Old Testament era. And together, these two men represent the entire Old Testament. Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. And the topic of conversation is Jesus's departure that would take place in Jerusalem. In other words, they're talking about Jesus's death. Now, Jesus has just told his disciples, this would have been in your passage last week, Jesus has just told his disciples earlier in chapter 9 that he would be rejected and killed. And now he's talking about that same subject with Moses and Elijah. And what's more, all three men are glowing in this amazing kind of radiant, glorious light. Moses and Elijah are not trying to talk Jesus out of it. No one's standing there looking confused. No one's pointing the finger. No one's getting upset or rebuking Jesus. Clearly, Jesus's death is a plan that the law and the prophets both support. Not only the law and the prophets, but God himself is behind it. Because soon after that, there's a voice that comes this is my son. It's God's voice. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So the law, the prophets, God himself, they're all behind this plan for, go, to go, for Jesus to go to Jerusalem and die. And yet, this is not the picture that anybody had most notably the disciples, but this is not the picture that anybody had of the God of the Old Testament or God's Messiah written about in the Old Testament. 
And so Peter, James, and John, they come down the mountain. They're up there for the night. They come down the next day, and the disciples are speechless. They have no idea, really, about what to make, about what they've just heard or seen. But the following four events demonstrate that they are still very limited, in spite of their arresting encounter, that they're still very limited in terms of their ideas about God. There's four scenes that follow. And the first one is they're met by this large crowd of people. You might want to imagine them. They just come down to the bottom of the mountain. They, they meet the rest of the disciples. And there's this large crowd there. And there's a man in the crowd. And he's brought his son, who is demon-possessed, to the disciples to see if they could cast out this demon. And they can't. We're not told, not in Luke's gospel, why they can't cast it out. But Jesus is particularly harsh in his response. He doesn't just seem to have the disciples in mind, though, in his response. He seems to have the entire Israelite generation of that time. He says in verse 41, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? This kind of language is used quite frequently or a few times in the Old Testament to describe Israel. In other words, the Old Test what's happened in the Old Testament is happening now in the disciples' own generation. The Old Testament's a little bit like a broken record uh, with regard to its description of Israel. It's basically four, you could describe it in four words in terms of what Israel think about God over and over again. They don't know God. Amazing. Israel is repeated from Deuteronomy all the way through to the end of the Old Testament. Israel don't know God. And yet here they are as God's chosen people. They have, um, their orth they have orthodox beliefs. They have... Um, confessions about God, they have all these theological ideas about God, we would probably describe them as conservative, theologically, but they don't know God. Which, which perhaps explains why the next scene is Jesus explaining again to the disciples that he's going to die. Once again, Jesus is trying to paint this picture he's trying to get this across to the disciples that the image that they have in their mind of God is not the image is not the real image but before we get to that just notice for a moment just step back for a moment and, and pay attention to the scene here notice how the crowd have responded to Jesus casting out the demon that the disciples couldn't cast out. The text says that everyone was marveling, which means that everyone is overwhelmed with amazement. They're kind of standing there in awe of what Jesus has just done. And the disciples are there, and you've got to imagine that they're just soaking in this amazement. Think about it for a moment. Ten days earlier, the disciples have co had correctly identified Jesus as God's Messiah. Who do people say that I am? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But who do you say that I am? 
you are God's Messiah. That happened 10 days previously. Three of them, Peter, James, and John, have had an overnight light show on top of a mountain with none other than Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and then they've heard God's audible voice. And then Jesus casts out this demon that no one else is able to cast out, and the crowd are absolutely going off. Jesus is growing in popularity. He's a hero. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus doesn't wait. In the midst of all of this fever pitch kind of atmosphere, Jesus says to his disciples in verse 44, listen carefully. It's the second time they've heard listen in the last two days. He says, listen carefully. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, remember, right now, there's a crowd of excited people around marveling at Jesus. In fact, I can't help but think how this would make such a great comedy skit. I mean, just imagine the crowd marveling, the disciples standing around, Jesus telling them that he's going to die. The disciples look at each other for a bit, kind of ponder, and then they look back at Jesus and say, yeah, nah, and kind of laugh it off. They don't understand. They just, they just don't have the categories for this kind of thing. The text says it was hidden from them and they were afraid to ask him about it. It's interesting that it says that it was hidden from them. Some think that this means that God hid it from them. I don't think so. I think they've been blinded by their own perceptions, by their own ideas of who they think God is. Everything they have seen up until this point speaks of power. But Jesus is trying to paint a picture for them of powerless. And they just can't get it. They just don't have the categories for that. The last church that we were at in Brisbane before we came back to New Zealand, there was a, a radio announcer in that church. You may have heard of him, Dave Matthews. He was on 96.5 in Brisbane. I don't think he's there now. And when we first were at that church, um, I used to listen to Dave Matthews on the radio. I hadn't met him up until that point. And my boys would say, Dad, Dave Matthews is at our church. And I would say, oh, wow, I hear him on the radio. And they, and, and they would often say to me, Dad, have you met Dave Matthews yet? And I would say, no. And I was kind of, as I would listen to him on the radio, I would build up this picture in my mind of what this Dave Matthews fellow would look like. You might do that when you listen to the radio. You kind of build this image, this picture in your mind of what the radio announcer looks like. And then I met the guy. I met Dave Matthews. Nothing like the picture I had in my mind. We all have this picture, this idea, whether we like it or not, of God in our minds. We can't help it. But God can never be limited to our ideas about him. Paul Tripp says, danger is afloat when you come to love the ideas more than the God whom they represent. How often does God show up 
in our lives and we can't see him because we have this preconceived idea, this preconceived expectation of what he must be like. Remember the disciples as they make their way across, making their way across the Sea of Galilee in the storm and they're really struggling and um, Jesus is up on the hill praying and he sees them struggling and so eventually he comes down and he walks past them on the water and the disciples look out and they and they think they've seen a ghost and they're terrified and Jesus says don't be afraid it's me they imagine that they've seen a ghost not realizing that it's actually God it's actually Jesus who is in front of them how often does God come to us but all we can see is something scary think about it for a moment God's Messiah comes to earth as a baby, hangs out with the marginalized and the sinners and is persecuted. No one sees God. No one recognizes him. And yet Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul, the Apostle Paul, before he got converted, persecuted the church. And yet Jesus abruptly comes to him one day and says why are you persecuting me well Paul would have never have guessed Paul also after his conversion a number of years later is given a thorn in the flesh from Satan and yet Jesus tells Paul that God's grace is in that thorn Here's the point. How often do we miss God in our lives? How often do we miss him showing up in our lives? Because we have this preconceived idea of what God's like. Matthew 25 tells a parable. We know it as the parable of the sheep and the goats. And it's a parable about the final judgment where Jesus will say to two groups of people various things. And he'll say to one group, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And he'll say that to two different, he'll say that to another group, I was these things and you never did these things to me. Both groups say, when? When, when were you sick? When were you hungry? When were you in prison? I think of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, which is very similar. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. How often does God show up in our lives, but we simply don't recognize him? because of our preconceived ideas how often do we limit God by our ideas of who we think he is or who we think he should be I was speaking to a good friend of mine a pastor in, a, in Brisbane just yesterday actually and he'd been talking to a young mum in his church who hates the fact that she doesn't get any time to pray and read the bible as much anymore all of her time has gone. And my friend said he couldn't help but think that caring for a child and all the pressures and the servanthood 
could teach this young mum far more than perhaps praying or reading the Bible ever could. He said to me, it's an invitation to be close to, to, be close to Jesus, but it looks very different to what she wants. Again, the point is, how often does God show up in our lives that we fail to recognize him because of our preconceived ideas? Well, let's have a look at these last two scenes. There's this principle in the Bible. We see it back in the Old Testament. It's a very important one, that we become like what we worship. Now, if we keep that principle in mind, as we look at these last two scenes, it explains an awful lot. The disciples are still thinking of God and his Messiah within their own framework of religious notions and ideas. The first scene, there's an argument among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. And then the second scene, the last scene, is someone is driving out demons in Jesus's name and the disciples try to stop him because He's not one of them. Both episodes reveal what's really going on in the disciples' hearts. Pride, exclusiveness, superiority. If we become like what we worship, what does this kind of attitude reveal about the idea that we have of God? Now, I must admit, at this point, it's very, very difficult talking to a camera. Uh, in the room that I'm in. Uh, I can't see any of you. Uh, normally, I don't struggle so much if I'm in a church setting, I'm in a small room, but I really want you to just ponder this point for a moment. If we become like what we worship, if we become like what we worship, then we can kind of tell the kind of God that we have in our minds by the attitudes that we have towards others in our life. We simply, it's a matter of working backwards to see our attitudes, to see our behavior and work back to the kind of God that that reflects that we are worshiping. For the disciples, their God is someone who's exclusive. He's for Israel only. He's only interested in certain types of people. He's an exclusive God. So Jesus takes a little child and he stands this child in the midst of them. And he says to them, I want you to look at this little child. The one who is the least among you is the greatest. You see, he's trying to change their ideas He's trying to change their images, their pictures that they have in their mind of who God is, what it means to be a follower of God. The disciples misunderstand God's greatness and power. And it's only a small step from something like that to an attitude that says, we saw someone doing such and such in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Luke 9 is a key moment in Jesus's ministry. It's here that Jesus attempts to change centuries of distorted thinking about God. 
And it's no academic exercise. The kind of God we have in our minds will determine the kind of life that we live. Now, it's easy to imagine because we live after the cross that we're not at risk of falling into the same kind of trap as the disciples. I've got two examples here that illustrate that that's absolutely not the case. Now, over in Australia, Hillsong have been in the media a lot last year and this year. And here in New Zealand, we have our own media controversy going on with regard to one mega church here in Auckland. And this particular church has a training program for people wanting to equip themselves for ministry. It's like a Bible college, they have classes, but it's a very heavy, heavy on a practical, heavy on practical components as well. They call the students interns. And it's come out that the church leaders of this particular church have been treating the students like slave labor. That's what the newspaper articles are saying. Allegations of heavy handedness and abuse of power have come out. Another mega church pastor here in New Zealand in the same city in Auckland posted on Facebook recently, just the other day, to defend this particular church and their pastors. Their pastor, the two pastors of this church, a husband and wife, have since resigned. And so there's another mega church pastor that have come to their defense. And here's what he said on a public Facebook post just recently. To achieve what these pastors have achieved, one would have to be naive to acknowledge God's hand on them and on this church. So some interns got worked too hard. Some people got hurt. Can I just say that any high achiever, unfortunately, by their own sheer giftings and drive, run over a few people along the way. End of quote. If we become like what we worship, that's saying that their idea of God is someone who will at times run over a few people along the way just to achieve his purposes. People actually think that. Here's another illustration, just in case that one is perhaps a little bit extreme. Many years ago, I flattered with a guy uh, whose father was an elder in the church that we were going to and he had an affair with a woman and it lasted for six weeks and he returned to his wife and his wife took him back and I remember the first Sunday he was back at church it was a Sunday night and he was up the front um, this was before church had started and, and he was visible somehow doing something up the front and I remember two ladies in front of me, sitting in front of me, and one turned to the other and said, I wouldn't take him back. And that's always stuck with me. I was just a new Christian at the time. 
And the thing that struck me with me was that maybe she wouldn't take him back, but God would. God always will take us back. God will always take the adulterer back. Who is your idea of God? What kind of picture do you have in your mind? I read a book as I was preparing for a class back in Brisbane a few years ago by a man named John Taylor, The Christ-like God. It was written in 1992. Well worth the read. He says, I am amazed that so few religious people ever stop and think about God. The thought of him may often be in their minds, but they do not explore it. It does not grow. It is not allowed to change. Many people have lived for years with an unexamined stereotype of God, but its changelessness is more like the fixidity of an idol than the trustworthiness of a living God. That's the trap that the disciples have fallen into. He goes on to say that the true God must surely be more surprising than that, since our understanding of him can never be final. Now, I know that we probably know this in principle. And if I had a little bit more time, and perhaps if I was with you in person, I would talk to you about my own story in this regard, how God has shaped my ideas and expanded my ideas in terms of who he is. But what I want to get across, basically, is how often do we treat God like he's a doctrine or a creed or words on paper? or he's wrapped up in this theological framework or theological system that we have. If there's one thing that we know about Jesus and the Gospels is that he will never fit into our frameworks or systems or categories. Let's think through the Gospel of Luke to finish. Jesus is born in a manger. This is God become flesh born in a manger because there is no guest room available for him. He's led by the spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He tells people not to tell anyone they, when they figure out who he is. He forgives sins. He eats with the lowest of the low, tax collectors and prostitutes. He doesn't follow Jewish traditions and rules. He even does things at times that appear to be unlawful. He sides with the poor, the hungry, the oppressed, the widows. He never speaks nicely about the rich. He tells people to love their enemies. He lets a prostitute kiss and wipe his feet with her hair. He never speaks well of those who are religious and think they know God. He told parables that went against the grain or current theological thinking. He tells a parable about a boy who demands his father's inheritance, squanders it all on prostitutes and wild living, 
returns home with his tail between his legs, and his father doesn't even wait for a confession. And Jesus says, that's what God is like. The religious, the religious leaders thinks he's possessed by a demon, which tells us how wrong they were about God. He makes it clear that it's not those who fast and pray and know their Bibles who are blessed by God. He tells a rich young man to sell all he has and give to the poor. He tells a thief on the cross. He tells the thief hanging next to him on the cross before he's about to be killed that today he will be with him in paradise. Jesus never fits our categories. And this is what he's trying to get across to the disciples. And next week, we're going to see how he resolutely sets the path for Jerusalem, for his death, to an unimaginable picture, this unimaginable idea that no one would ever conjure up or even think of. And yet that's where he's going. And the law and the prophets and God himself are behind it. And he invites everyone who wants to know him and to know this God, to follow him. Not in their theological frameworks or systems or categories, but to follow him and to let him shape our lives, to let him meet us where we're at. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he does not fit into our categories. We thank you that he does not fit into our simple images. And yet, so often in various ways, sometimes very, very subtly, we confine him to the boxes that we have. Um, we have expectations. We have ideas. We have uh, certain um, presuppositions about who he is and who he must be. And yet uh, he destroys those every time. Help us to be alert enough, to pay attention enough, to learn from the disciples, uh, to do as we heard twice in this chapter, to listen, to listen carefully, to pay attention. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.